0: I'm Tracy Sable tonight on EWTN News Nightly, Jobs Report. A closer look at some possible good news for the U.S. economy. Synod on synodality. We're at the Vatican as the global gathering begins in earnest. I on Nicaragua. Lawmakers push for the release of a bishop imprisoned by the Ortega regime. And The Ballot and the Bible, how public figures use sacred scripture for political gain. These stories add more tonight.
1: From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly.
0: Thank you for being with us. Our top story tonight, President Joe Biden says September was another good month for American workers as employers added 336,000 jobs, nearly twice as many as expected. However, that means the Federal Reserve could raise interest rates again to get inflation under control. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen.
1: Tracy, good evening to you. Tonight, President Joe Biden is touting Bidenomics, citing nearly 14 million jobs created during his presidency, including 815,000 in manufacturing. But at the same time, the cost of mortgages and auto loans, for example, up. Grocery shopping hurting wallets, and a gallon of gas, three seventy-four dollars a gallon. In the Roosevelt Room of the White House, President Joe Biden discusses the September jobs report. We have the highest share of working-age Americans in the workforce in 20 years. And it's no accident. It's Bidenomics. And while Americans struggle with high prices, the president told reporters polling shows Americans are more positive about their jobs and the economy, adding...
2: I think they know
1: They're better off financially than they were before. It's a fact. But the RNC blames Bidenomics for high costs for rent, groceries and electric bills. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris continues the administration's push for abortion. She tweeted, all across our nation, extremist so-called leaders are attacking the right of women to decide what to do with their own bodies. The vice president is scheduled to speak about abortion at more college campuses next week. She earlier planned to stop in Madison, Wisconsin. But the bishop there appeals to the administration to protect life. I would speak to their hearts, uh, appeal to them that each one of us at one point was um, that small within the womb of our mother, that each person has the right to life. Bishop Donald Hying told us he's concerned about pro-life setbacks in Wisconsin, but he offers encouragement. There's some very strong headwinds against us, and yet our hope obviously is in the Lord. And think of the perseverance of the faith, the sacrifice, but ultimately the the fruit that has come forth from the pro-life movement for the last 50 years. So there's always hope. Now, Bishop Hying also told us, quote, the government seems to be neglecting its fundamental duty to protect the lives of our citizens. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly.
0: As we reported last night, former President Donald Trump is mulling over a visit to Capitol Hill next week to meet with a House Republican caucus. GOP members will be gathering on Tuesday evening in an attempt to select the next Speaker of the House. The 45th president told reporters that he would consider accepting the nomination and become speaker for a short time. However, House GOP rules prohibit anyone under a felony indictment to hold the office. The former president also said that he is endorsing Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio as the next Speaker of the House. Well, since 2018, the government in Nicaragua has conducted a crackdown campaign on religious institutions, most notably the Catholic Church. The dictatorship of President Daniel Ortega is targeting clergy members. Case in point, Bishop Rolando Alvarez, he fought for fundamental freedoms in Nicaragua and paid a price. The bishop gained international attention when he refused exile to stay with his flock. A court sentenced him to 26 years in prison. Now American lawmakers are demanding answers from the Ortega regime. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rizalas
3: has the latest. Eric? I'm just outside the Nicaraguan embassy in Washington, D.C., where I'm trying to get answers on the health of Catholic Bishop Rolando Alvarez and to see if we can set up a meeting with him in the near future. EWTN News Nightly is not alone on this journey. Republican Congressman from New Jersey Chris Smith is one of the loudest voices on Capitol Hill. He chairs a House Global Human Rights Subcommittee. He's written the Nicaraguan dictator demanding to know if Bishop Alvarez is alive. You wrote a letter. Uh, Have you heard anything back?
4: Not a thing. Repeatedly, I've asked to be able to visit with Bishop Alvarez, uh, to meet with him in prison uh, in Nicaragua. I've written to Ortega himself a couple of times, several times and reached out. Uh, we're very concerned about his welfare.
3: Former U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom Sam Brownback tells me China is advising President Ortega to crack down on the Catholic Church.
4: Look, the only institution in this country that can threaten use the Catholic Church, you've got to put your boot on their neck, and that's what he's done. He's shut down Catholic schools, he's shut down Catholic radio stations, and now he's removed Bishop Alvarez, and we don't even know where he is.
3: The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops called the bishop's arrest unjust and in a statement demanded his immediate release. Quote, the consensus from the international community is clear. The continued incarceration of Bishop Alvarez is unjust and must end as soon as possible. Both Brownback and Representative Smith say Congress must do more to highlight the persecution of Catholics and other Christians in Nicaragua.
4: We have to make this an ever-present issue. You know, every time we have a dialogue and Uh, and you're meeting with interlocutors on any of these issues, whether it be China or Nicaragua or anywhere else where there's persecution, it has to be first and foremost. This is really about freedom of religion and the, the Catholic Church, and it's about our confrontation with China. We view religious freedom as a cornerstone human right. They view it as an existential
3: threat. Four other priests have been arrested in Nicaragua in the past month, bringing the total detained by the Ortega regime to nine. In Washington, D.C., Eric Rosales, EWTN, News Nightly.
0: At the Vatican, work has begun on the Synod on Synodality. Participants have broken down into 35 small groups, primarily divided by language. EWTN Vatican News correspondent Colin Flynn has more.
5: One by one they arrived. Cardinals, bishops, religious and lay people from across the world coming to play their part in the first week of the Vatican's Synod on Synodality. This month-long meeting aims to bring people together to gather various points of view on how the Church can better fulfil its mission in the future. The Synod is taking place in the VI Hall, inside the walls of Vatican City, where the Wednesday general audience often takes place. It's the first time the Synod is taking place here, simply because of the large numbers taking part this year in comparison to previous years. There are strict rules around what the participants can talk about outside of the Synod Hall. So getting information on the specifics of what is actually being discussed is difficult. However, outside the hall, we were able to talk to a number of people, like Auxiliary Bishop of Utrecht in the Netherlands, Theodorus Cornelius Hagenboom.
2: Well, well, uh, of course, the Synod is an adventure, and um, I hope that um, listening to each other, uh, listening to the Holy Spirit, will bring forth, well, Unity in the Church, and also, uh, well, to get to know each other. It's not the, it's not the final synod. eh? Next year there will be a second, second round. But I can say already now that, well, it's uh, we are in a learning process. I already said the Church of the, the Holy Spirit is the protagonist of the of the synod, and I will not speak before my turn. The synod
5: also takes into consideration the views of those in different parts of the Catholic Church. For example, Bishop Milan Lach is the auxiliary bishop of Bratislava in Slovakia. As you know, the first part, you know, to listening to prayer, to silence, to to listen, uh, in, to be in prayer. What is important not only on this synod, but for every 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 moment of the Christian life to really to be in deep relation with God. This is something Pope Francis has emphasised since the very beginning of the Synod, that silence, reflection and prayer is essential to the process. And this year, as has been widely reported, there are more women taking part than ever before. A direct call from Pope Francis to have women more involved in the life of the Church.
6: Each one receives the charisma in his baptism and therefore contributes to this church. The greatest challenge is that this church understands what each one contributes, values it and puts it into practice. I think that is the most important thing.
5: The Synod is an important meeting for all those who take part. But for some, this is especially poignant, to be at the center of such an important decision-making event for the Catholic Church.
2: 25 years ago, exactly this month, I came to Rome to study canon law. And I could not imagine that I would return 25 years later to attend the synod. And what resonates in me is meeting real, the, the world church with all kinds of challenges, but a lot of, uh, well, a, a lot of uh, questions, but also a lot of joy. In Rome,
5: Colm Flynn, EWTN News nightly.
0: Britain's Prime Minister says traditional understanding of gender is, quote, common sense in remarks this week. Rishi Sunak says a man is a man and a woman is a woman, and no one should be bullied into believing that people can determine their own gender. Well, in Germany, plans to accommodate transgender swimmers at the World Cup starting today have been scrapped. World Aquatics has created a so-called open category for transgender competitors. That grouping was canceled After it received no entries, swimming's governing body has banned transgender competitors for major events like the Olympics and World Championships. We turn now to Julie Gunlock, director of the Independent Women's Forum. Julie, great to be with you as always. So what do you make of the fact that for a major swimming competition, no one signed up for this so-called open category?
7: Well, it reveals what this is all about. It is about men, who do not compete well in a male category, so they don't compete well against their fellow men, um, entering female spaces, female competitions, and knowing that they have an advantage over women biologically and competitively, And beating those women and then taking scholarships, taking awards, taking medals, taking trophies, taking scholarships. That is what this is about. It is about very selfish men who can't compete taking these very valuable items from women. Um, This is a tragedy, and it is a a case of women being canceled uh, by men who, again, can't compete with their own biological sex. Yeah. And what do you think about this? I
0: mean, it seems like they were trying to accommodate uh, transgender swimmers here. Um, Your thoughts on that, you know, and having a category like this.
7: There's a little bit of splitting the baby here. War, World Aquatics, which is the this, this swimming sports governing body, was trying to protect women and protect women's w- women's sports, which should be a priority. But they were also trying to allow these people, transgender-identified people, a category where they could compete. But again, they don't want to. These male-bodied athletes want to compete in women's categories
0: Yeah, Julia, I want to come a little closer to home for both of us here in Virginia. Uh, Staying with women's swimming, the Daily Mail is reporting that a biological male previously on the men's swimming team at Roanoke College in Virginia uh, has, quote, transitioned to being a woman and now joined the women's team and the three female team captains. Well, they are now demanding that rules be put in place nationwide to combat this. What more do you know about this story?
7: Yeah, I, I I know a lot about it. The Independent Women's Forum sort of organized the press conference that happened yesterday. And it was amazing. These young women are so brave because they're not standing for this. And look, the male who who decided to join the women's swim team and was accepted by the coaches who put his feelings above the feelings of the female swimmers. um, He has now quit. He's moved on. This is great. But these women still stood up and said, look, I felt uncomfortable. I felt scared. I felt demoralized. Why in the world would I even compete if I know a male I'm suing against a male who has these advantages against me? So those women are leaders, they join great leaders like Riley Gaines and and really expressing their discomfort here. And the fact that the grown-ups it, from colleges to these governing bodies, these sports governing bo- bodies, they're the ones that need to make new rules to protect women. These girls shouldn't be the ones screaming about this. These rules, these governing bodies and these colleges And these coaches are the ones who should be doing it.
0: Yeah, and it is not just happening, as we know, uh, in colleges, either happening in the high school level, uh, quickly, probably about 30 seconds left or so. But I want to touch about on this about a story coming out of Maine, uh, a boy who previously p- placed, I believe, 172nd place in a cross-country yes. meet last year as a freshman, as a boy. Well, he transitioned to a girl, and apparently he came in fourth place. There has been a lot of backlash
7: uh, coming out of the state of Maine on this. What more can you tell us about this story? I'm I Look, I think people are tired of this. I think that they started to see this and they thought, oh, I want to be nice. I want to be kind. But this is men who are pretending to be women and they don't care about fairness. They are taking things away from women. This is the feminist cause of our day. We need to protect sports and we need to protect these young athletes who have bright futures that are being quashed by these males who suddenly want to compete with them. It is an absolute shame. And I hope we're going to see a reversal and some of these organizations step up and really care about this issue and save women's sports.
0: All right, we're going to leave right there. Julie, always great to be with you. Thanks so much for weighing in. Appreciate it. Thank you. And we have a lot more so to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including targeting religion. Can the IRS monitor donors of Catholic nonprofits? An ongoing court case may answer that question. And the Nobel Committee announces the winner of its Peace Prize. A federal court case in the Southern District of Ohio could have major implications for the church and Catholic charitable organizations. In Buckeye Institute versus IRS, the issue of donor privacy is in question for tax exempt organizations, specifically whether the IRS can keep information on donors. Recently, one of the largest Catholic advocacy organizations in the U.S., Catholic Vote, added its name to an amicus brief in support of the Buckeye Institute, fearing negative ramifications for the church if the IRS wins. And joining us now is the president of Catholic Vote, Brian Birch. Brian, great to have you back on. We appreciate it. Uh, Can you give us a little bit more background on this court case and also why you thought it was so important for Catholics to be
6: represented?
4: Yes, no, thank you. This is a very important case coming out of Ohio, and it's likely to make its way to the Supreme Court eventually. And really what this case is about is whether nonprofit organizations, whether my own or the Catholic church itself and and religious or educational institutions uh, should be required to disclose to the IRS as a part of their tax returns, the schedule of their donors by name and address. And uh, the concern here is that the IRS is able to get this information by other means, but because these tax returns are made public by the IRS Left-wing organizations have increasingly used this information uh, to target donors, to shame them, to cancel them, uh, to protest their businesses, to protest their homes. And frankly, uh, this, in our opinion, is a violation of the First Amendment. Uh, Donors to religious organizations or causes of this type. Uh, Their privacy should be protected, and the IRS should not be weaponized and used as a tool by left-wing groups to target individuals in this country.
0: Yeah, Brian, I talk a little bit more about that. That uh, retribution uh, can lead to really a chilling effect. Um, Tell us maybe a little bit more, you know, how you see that possibly affecting the Catholic Church and other Catholic charitable organizations.
4: Sure. Well, I can be very specific. This is not a theoretical uh, possibility. In 2014, uh, a rogue agent inside the IRS Uh, took the tax return of the National Organization for Marriage and released the names of those donors to the public. Uh, The names of those donors were then posted online and were used by uh, gay rights groups to harass those donors. And so you ask yourself if you donate or make a contribution of some significance to a religious charity, particularly if that charity is engaged in some type of advocacy that left-wing ideologues don't agree with, um, are you comfortable with that information being shared publicly? And for that to be distributed to some of these groups that frankly are are prone to very aggressive tactics, including in some cases violence.
0: Brian, what else do you want people to know about this case?
4: Well, I think we need to be aware that when we talk about the weaponization of the government, we're not just talking about the FBI or the Department of Justice. We're talking about the very subtle ways in which what seemingly innocuous agencies like the IRS who are collecting our taxes are also being used by left-wing advocacy groups and left-wing activists to target political opponents. And this is just another example of the dangerous way in which we need to insist that our First Amendment rights be protected, that our rights to religious liberty are sacrosanct, that the Constitution is there for a purpose. And we need to be very vigilant in this case may only be in Ohio now, but we like we believe it's headed uh, higher up. And uh, we think Catholics in particular need to be paying close attention.
0: All right. And thank you for bringing this to our attention. We'll continue to follow it. Brian, thank you so much for your insights. Appreciate it.
4: Thank you so much.
0: Up next on EWTN News Nightly, religion on the ballot. How Bible quotes from the past apply to politics today. Plus, the latest winner of the Nobel Prize is one of the most outspoken critics of Iran's government despite being jailed. A jailed Iranian activist is the latest winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. guest Mohammadi has been campaigning for three decades for women's rights and abolition of the death penalty in Iran. She is currently serving multiple sentences for so called actions against national security. Even as she serves her sentence, Mohammadi still fights for women's rights, often chanting, Woman, Life, Freedom. Finally, tonight, a new book examines the relationship between U.S. politics and the Bible the Bible and the ballot examines ways in which sacred scripture has been used correctly and misused in American politics and daily life. Examples include the role the Bible played in the civil rights movement and in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And we go now to the author of the ballot in the Bible, Caitlin Shesh, a student at Duke Divinity School. Caitlin, great to be with you today. Uh, First off, a lot of questions here, but the first question, what inspired you to study this topic and then ultimately write
6: a book about it? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I've spent the last few years working primarily with Christian churches and schools talking about faith and public life. And easily the number one question that I got were different Bible passages that people had questions about. And then the number two question was how do I have a conversation with my aunt at the Thanksgiving table or the person that sits next to me in church? And so I wanted to spend some time looking at the history of particularly American interpretation of scripture to hopefully give us some examples that we could dialogue with people who disagree with us about in a context that's not as heated as the immediate political questions of our moment. I thought that that history might help us have some tangible examples to talk about that could help us interpret scripture better in our current political context as well. And so what did you find out when you were researching for the book? Probably the most surprising thing that I found is that we have had the same habits many times over in American history. We have a lot of the same kind of practices. We tend to use scripture more often to justify the political positions that we already hold. And we tend to use it as kind of a weapon against those that disagree with us. There have been, you know, sermons and letters that I read, you know, 100 or 150 years ago that use pretty similar tactics that we hear today. Things like, well, our church is just preaching the gospel, but that church over there is preaching politics, and what that taught me is that it's really challenging for us to overcome the biases we have politically. And yet it also taught me that biblical language is incredibly powerful. There's a reason that politicians and pastors have so consistently gone to it. It does speak to our common life together in powerful ways. The language and images have sparked a lot of politics, both positive and negative. And so I think one of the things that we learn is that when we go back and find interpretations that provoke or challenge us, that should lead us to examination of the ways in which the biases of our current moment shape our interpretation as well, and look to voices in the past that spoke against the dominant perspectives of their particular community to see what was different. How were they able to see beyond the kind of pressures of the moment they were in?
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, Caitlin, can you give us maybe some examples Uh, of the ways in which the Bible has been used maybe effectively and
6: correctly in politics. Sure. So I think some of the ways that we've used it correctly in the past, I particularly spent a lot of time thinking about both abolitionists and then those in the civil rights movement who saw in scripture not only a picture of, of God caring for those who are impoverished and those who are captive, but also especially kind of reasons for our, uh, our opposition to that oppression and injustice being motivated by love and Christian concern. It's pretty remarkable when you think about the witness of many Christians in the American context who have resisted oppression but have done it with nonviolence, have done it with love for others. And that was often motivated by an eschatological picture of, of the coming redemption of creation, the resurrection of our bodies. And so they found you know motivation for their political work, not only in stories of, of people pressing back against unjust systems in scripture, against unjust kings in the Old Testament and unjust systems in the New Testament, but also then found that this picture of redemption at the end of, this, of the biblical story was a motivation for them to say, some political options are off the table for us. We will seek justice with everything we have in this life, but we know that ultimately God will vindicate and redeem our efforts. And so we won't respond with violence. We won't use unjust means to seek justice. And I think that's a challenging word for us today.
0: We are almost out of time, a little less than a minute left, but I'm curious, you know, looking ahead to the 2024 campaign, um, have you noticed any candidates who are already turning to Bible passages uh, in their campaigns? And can you give us examples of that?
6: I think the most interesting example is that both of the Republican primaries thus far have referenced Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount of being a city upon a hill, but neither of them have connected that to Jesus. Instead, they've connected it to Ronald Reagan, which I think is a good indication for us that many of our habits of interpreting scripture have been so situated in the American context that we kind of can't hear them afresh. So uh, my kind of recommendation to people would be when you hear language that sounds sort of transcendent or familiar, spiritual, look it up, see if it comes from scripture and look at the context that surrounds it to see if maybe it's being used appropriately or it might be misused.
0: All right, we're going to leave right there. Caitlin, great to be with you. Congratulations on the book. And quickly, uh, where can
6: folks find it? You can find it wherever books are sold, especially at Baker Bookhouse, which is connected to Baker, which is publisher.
0: All right. Sounds good. Thank you again. And God bless. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.